This is The Guardian. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Hi, I'm Darren Byler, an anthropologist at Simon Fraser University, and I'm the author of the story China's High-Tech War on its Muslim Minority. This story was really my first attempt to come to terms with something I'd been observing over the last decade of research in Northwest China, where I was studying migration to the city, policing systems, surveillance, and transformations of those systems. Internet at first seemed to provide a lot of freedom for Uyghurs, but over time it became something that was controlling their lives. I was hearing these stories of people who were being detained and having their faces and their phones scanned. I was hearing stories of Uyghurs hiding SD cards from their phones in trees and burying them in their backyards, trying to keep them out of the gaze of the state. So there was a kind of desperation in the air. And so this was me trying to come to grips with that. Since I wrote the article, I've published a a book-length piece on this called In the Camps, China's High-Tech Penal Colony, which builds on the research for this article, but then looks at a whole range of different experiences of detention, of the perspective of the police, people working in camps who were in charge of detaining these people and re-educating them. And we've also been given access to internal police documents, which show us how the system actually begins to control people's lives, what its goals are, what proportion of population is being detained. What's changed is some of the sort of formal narrative uh, around this coming from the state. But the system as it was built in 2017, continues into the present. Those that were detained back in 2017 have not been released for the most part and are still missing. What's happening to the Uyghurs is this dystopian techno-political system of control. All of us, I think, are in a similar kind of digital enclosure, but the parameters of the system have not been turned up to the extent that they have been for Uyghurs. But still there's a similarity, and and so I think for those reasons we should be quite alarmed by what we're seeing. What I really want readers to come away with from this article is that there's an immense human tragedy that's unfolding as well, that families are being separated from each other, that life is being constrained in such a way that people can't speak to each other about what they're experiencing because they know that everything they say could be recorded. And so it's a kind of 
isolation and separation that is extremely violent. And I want people to understand that this is reality for people um, and it's changing their lives in really dramatic ways. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. China's high-tech war on its Muslim minority by Darren Byler. In mid-2017, Alim, a Uyghur man in his 20s, returned to China from studying abroad. As soon as he landed back in the country, he was pulled off the plane by police officers. He was told his trip abroad meant that he was now under suspicion of being unsafe. The police administered what they call a health check, which involved collecting several types of biometric data, including DNA, blood type, fingerprints, voice recordings, and face scans, a process that all adults in the Uyghur Autonomous Region of Xinjiang in northwest China are expected to undergo. After his health check, Alim was transported to one of the hundreds of detention centers that dot northwest China. These centers have become an important part of what Xi Jinping's government calls the People's War on Terror, a campaign launched in 2014 which focuses on Xinjiang, a region with a population of roughly 25 million people, just under half of whom are Uyghur Muslims. As part of this campaign, the Chinese government has come to treat almost all expressions of Uyghur Islamic faith as signs of potential religious extremism and ethnic separatism. Since 2017 alone, more than one million Turkic Muslims, including Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Kurds, and others, have moved through detention centers. At the detention center, Alim was deprived of sleep and food and subjected to hours of interrogation and verbal abuse. I was so weakened through this process that at one point during my interrogation I began to laugh hysterically, he said when we spoke. Other detainees report being placed in stress positions, tortured with electric shocks, and kept in isolation for long periods. When he wasn't being interrogated, Alim was kept in a tiny cell with 20 other Uyghur men. Many of the detainees had been arrested for having supposedly committed religious and political transgressions through social media apps on their smartphones, which Uyghurs are required to produce at checkpoints around Xinjiang. Although there was often no real evidence of a crime according to any legal standard, the digital footprint of unauthorized Islamic practice or even a connection to someone who had committed one of these vague violations, was enough to land Uyghurs in a detention center. The mere fact of having a family member abroad, or of traveling outside China, as Alim had, often resulted in detention. Most Uyghurs in the detention centers are on their way to serving long prison sentences or to indefinite captivity in a growing network of internment camps, which the Chinese state has described as facilities for transformation through education, 
These camps, which function as medium security prisons and, in some cases, forced labor factories, attempt to train Uyghurs to disavow their Islamic identity and embrace the secular principles of the Chinese state. They forbid the use of the Uyghur language and instead offer drills in Mandarin, the language of China's Han majority. Only a handful of detainees who are not Chinese citizens have been fully released from this re-education system. Alim was relatively lucky. He was let out after only two weeks. He later learned that a relative had intervened in his case. But a few weeks later, when he went to meet a friend for lunch at a mall in his home city, he had another shock. At a security checkpoint at the entrance to the mall, Alim scanned the photo on his government-issued identification card and presented himself before a security camera equipped with facial recognition software. An alarm sounded. The security guards let him pass, but within a few minutes he was approached by police officers, who then took him into custody. Alim learned that he had been placed on a blacklist maintained by the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, IJOP, a regional data system that uses AI to monitor the countless checkpoints in and around Xinjiang's cities. Any attempt to enter public institutions, such as hospitals, banks, parks, or shopping centers, or to cross beyond the boundaries of his local police precinct, would trigger the IJOP to alert police. The system had profiled him and predicted that he was a potential terrorist. There was little Alim could do. Officers told him he should just stay at home if he wanted to avoid detention again. Although he was officially free, Alim's biometrics and his digital history were being used to lock him in place. I'm so angry and afraid at the same time, he told me. He was haunted by his data. China's version of the War on Terror depends less on drones and strikes by elite military units than facial recognition software and machine learning algorithms. Its targets are not foreigners, but domestic minority populations who appear to threaten the Chinese Communist Party's authoritarian rule. In Xinjiang, the web of surveillance reaches from cameras on buildings to the chips inside mobile devices to Uyghurs' very physiognomy. Face scanners and biometric checkpoints track their movements almost everywhere. Other programs scan Uyghurs' digital communications, looking for suspect patterns and flagging religious speech or even a lack of fervor in using Mandarin. Deep learning systems search in real time through video feeds, capturing millions of faces, building an archive that can supposedly help identify suspicious behavior in order to predict who will become an unsafe actor. Actions that can trigger these computer vision technologies include dressing in an Islamic fashion and failing to attend nationalistic flag-raising ceremonies. All of these technological systems are brought together in the IJOP, 
which is constantly learning from the behaviors of the Uyghurs it watches. In her recent study on the rise of surveillance capitalism, the Harvard scholar Shoshana Zuboff notes that consumers are constantly generating valuable data that can be turned into profitable predictions about our preferences and future behaviors. In the Uyghur region, this logic has been taken to an extreme. The power and potential profitability of the predictive technologies that purport to keep Xinjiang safe derive from their unfettered access to Uyghurs' digital lives and physical movements. From the perspective of China's security industrial establishment, the principal purpose of Uyghur life is to generate data, which can then be used to further refine these systems of surveillance and control. Controlling the Uyghurs has also become a test case for marketing Chinese technological prowess around the world. A hundred government agencies and companies from two dozen countries, including the U.S., France, Israel, and the Philippines, now participate in the highly influential annual China-Eurasia Security Expo in Urumqi, the capital of the Uyghur region. The ethos at the expo, and in the Chinese techno-security industry as a whole, is that Muslim populations need to be managed and made productive. Over the past five years, the People's War on Terror has allowed a number of Chinese tech startups to achieve unprecedented levels of growth. In just the last two years, the state has invested an estimated $7.2 billion in techno-security in Xinjiang. As a spokesperson for one of these tech startups put it, 60% of the world's Muslim-majority nations are part of China's premier international development project, the Belt and Road Initiative. So there is unlimited market potential for the type of population control technology they are developing in Xinjiang. Some of the technologies pioneered in Xinjiang have already found customers in authoritarian states as far away as sub-Saharan Africa. In 2018, CloudWalk, a Guangzhou-based tech startup that has received more than $301 million in state funding, finalized an agreement with Zimbabwe's government to build a national mass facial recognition program in order to address social security issues. Cloudwalk has not revealed how much the agreement is worth. Freedom of movement through airports, railways, and bus stations throughout Zimbabwe will now be managed through a facial database integrated with other kinds of biometric data. In effect, the Uyghur homeland has become an incubator for China's terror capitalism. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. I'm Shantae Joseph, I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. There was a time when the internet seemed to promise a brighter future for China's Uyghurs. When I arrived in Urumqi in 2011 to conduct my first year of ethnographic fieldwork, the region had just been wired with 3G mobile data networks. When I returned in 2014, it seemed as though nearly all adults in the city had a smartphone. Suddenly, the Uyghur cultural figures who the government subsequently labeled unsafe, such as the pop star Ablajan, developed followings that numbered in the millions. Most unsettling, from the perspective of the state, unsanctioned Uyghur religious teachers based in China and Turkey also developed a deep influence. Since Mao's religious reform movement of 1958, the state had limited Uyghurs' access to mosques, Islamic funerary practices, religious knowledge, and other Muslim communities. There were virtually no Islamic schools outside of government control, no imams who were not approved by the state. Children under the age of 18 were forbidden to enter mosques, but as social media spread through the Uyghur homeland over the course of the last decade, it opened up a virtual space to explore what it meant to be Muslim. 
it reinforced a sense that the first sources of Uyghur identity were their faith and language, their claim to a native way of life, and their membership in a Turkic Muslim community stretching from Urumqi to Istanbul. Rather than being seen as perpetually lacking Han appearance and culture, they could find in their renewed Turkic and Islamic values a cosmopolitan and contemporary identity. Food, movies, music, and clothing imported from Turkey and Dubai became markers of distinction. Women began to veil themselves. Men began to pray five times a day. They stopped drinking and smoking. Some began to view music, dancing, and state television as influences to be avoided. The Han officials I met during my field work referred to this rise in technologically disseminated religious piety as the Talibanization of the Uyghur population. Along with Han settlers, they felt increasingly unsafe traveling to the region's Uyghur-majority areas and uneasy in the presence of pious Turkic Muslims. The officials cited incidents that carried the hallmarks of religiously motivated violence, a knife attack carried out by a group of Uyghurs at a train station in Kunming, trucks driven by Uyghurs through crowds in Beijing and Urumqi, as a sign that the entire Uyghur population was falling under the sway of terrorist ideologies. But, as dangerous as the rise of Uyghur social media seemed to Han officials, it also presented them with a new means of control. On July 5, 2009, Uyghur high school and college students had used Facebook and Uyghur language blogs to organize a protest demanding justice for Uyghur workers who were killed by their Han colleagues at a toy factory in eastern China. Thousands of Uyghurs took to the streets of Urumqi, waving Chinese flags and demanding that the government respond to the deaths of their comrades. When they were violently confronted by armed police, many of the Uyghurs responded by turning over buses and beating Han bystanders. In the end, more than 190 people were reported killed, most of them Han. Over the weeks that followed, hundreds, perhaps thousands of young Uyghurs were disappeared by the police. The internet was shut off in the region for nearly 10 months, and Facebook and Twitter were blocked across the country. Soon after the Internet came back online in 2010, with the notable absence of Facebook, Twitter, and other non-Chinese social media applications, state security, higher education, and private industry began to collaborate on breaking Uyghur Internet autonomy. Much of the Uyghur language Internet was transformed from a virtual free society into a zone where government technology could learn to predict criminal behavior. Broadly defined new anti-terrorism laws, first drafted in 2014, turned nearly all crimes committed by Uyghurs, from stealing a Han neighbor's sheep to protesting against land seizures, into forms of terrorism. Religious piety, which the new laws referred to as extremism, was conflated with religious violence. The Xinjiang security industry mushroomed from a handful of private firms 
to approximately 1,400 companies employing tens of thousands of workers, ranging from low-level Uyghur security guards to Han camera and telecommunications technicians to coders and designers. The Xi administration declared a state of emergency in the region. The People's War on Terror began, and Islamophobia was institutionalized. In 2017, after three years of operating a hard-strike policy that turned Xinjiang into what many considered an open-air prison, which involved instituting a passbook system that restricted Uyghurs' internal travel and deploying hundreds of thousands of security forces to monitor the families of those who had been disappeared or killed by the state, the government turned to a fresh strategy. A new regional party secretary named Chen Kuangguo introduced a policy of transforming Uyghurs. Local authorities began to describe the three evil forces of religious extremism, ethnic separatism, and violent terrorism as three interrelated ideological cancers. Because the digital sphere had allowed unauthorized forms of Islam to flourish, officials called for AI-enabled technology to crack down on these evils. Party leadership began to incentivize Chinese tech firms to develop technologies that could help the government control Uyghur society. Billions of dollars in government contracts were awarded to build smart security systems across the Uyghur region. The turn toward transformation coincided with breakthroughs in the AI-assisted computer systems that the Public Security Bureau rolled out in 2017 and brought together in the iJob. The Chinese startup, Maya Pico, began to market software to local and regional governments that was developed using state-supported research and could detect Uyghur language text and Islamic symbols embedded in images. The company also developed programs for automating the transcription and translation of Uyghur voice messaging. The company Hikvision advertised tools that could automate the identification of Uyghur faces based on physiological phenotypes. Other companies devised programs that would perform automated searches of Uyghur's internet activity and then compare the data it gleaned to school, job, banking, medical, and biometric records, looking for predictors of aberrant behavior. The rollout of this new technology required a great deal of manpower and technical training. More than 100,000 new police officers were hired. One of their jobs was to conduct the sort of health check Aleem underwent, creating biometric records for almost every human being in the region, Face signatures were created by scanning individuals from a variety of different angles as they made different facial expressions. The result was a high-definition portfolio of personal emotions. All Uyghurs were required to install nanny apps, which monitored everything they said, read, and wrote, and everyone they connected with on their smartphones. Higher-level police officers most of whom were Han, 
were given the job of conducting qualitative assessments of the Muslim population as a whole, providing more complex, interview-based survey data for IJOP's deep learning system. In face-to-face -face interviews, these neighborhood police officers assessed the more than 14 million Muslim minority people in Xinjiang and determined if they should be given the rating of safe, average, or unsafe. They determined this by categorizing the person using 10 or more categories, including whether or not the person was Uyghur, whether they prayed regularly, had an immediate relative living abroad, or had taught their children about Islam in their home. Those who were determined to be unsafe were then sent to the detention centers, where they were interrogated and asked to confess their crimes and name others who were also unsafe. In this manner, the officers determined which individuals should be slotted for the transformation through education internment camps. Many Muslims who passed their first assessment were subsequently detained because someone else named them as unsafe. In thousands of cases, years of WeChat history was used as evidence of the need for Uyghur suspects to be transformed. The state also assigned an additional 1.1 million Han and Uyghur big brothers and sisters to conduct week-long assessments on Uyghur families as uninvited guests in Uyghur homes. Over the course of these stays, the relatives tested the safe qualities of those Uyghurs who remained outside of the camp system by forcing them to participate in activities forbidden by certain forms of Islamic piety, such as drinking, smoking, and dancing. They looked for any sign of resentment or any lack of enthusiasm in Chinese patriotic activities. They gave the children candy so that they would tell them the truth about what their parents thought. All of this information was entered into databases and then fed back into the IJOP. The government's hope is that IJOP will, over time, run with less and less human guidance. Even now, it is always running in the background of Uyghur life. Always learning. In the tech community in the U.S., there is some skepticism regarding the viability of AI-assisted computer vision technology in China. Many experts I've spoken to from the AI policy world point to an article by the scholar Jathan Sadowski called Potemkin AI, which highlights the failures of Chinese security technology to deliver what it promises. They frequently bring up the way a system in Shenzhen meant to identify the faces of jaywalkers and flash them on giant screens next to busy intersections, cannot keep up with the faces of all the jaywalkers. As a result, human workers sometimes have to manually gather the data used for public shaming. They point out that Chinese tech firms and government agencies have hired hundreds of thousands of low-paid police officers to monitor internet traffic and watch banks of video monitors. As with the theater of airport security rituals in the U.S., many of these experts argue that it is the threat of surveillance 
rather than the surveillance itself that causes people to modify their behavior. Yet while there is a good deal of evidence to support this skepticism, a notable rise in the automated detection of internet-based Islamic activity, which has resulted in the detention of hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs, also points to the real effects of the implementation of AI-assisted surveillance and policing in Xinjiang. Even Western experts at Google and elsewhere admit that Chinese tech companies now lead the world in these computer vision technologies due to the way the state funds Chinese companies to collect, use, and report on the personal data of hundreds of millions of users across China. The Han officials I spoke with during my fieldwork in Xinjiang often refused to acknowledge the way disappearances, frequent police shootings of young Uyghur men, and state seizures of Uyghur land might have motivated earlier periods of Uyghur resistance. They did not see correlations between limits on Uyghur religious education, restrictions on Uyghur travel, and widespread job discrimination on the one hand, and the rise in Uyghur desires for freedom, justice, and religiosity on the other. Because of the crackdown, Han officials have seen a profound diminishment of Islamic belief and political resistance in Uyghur social life. They're proud of the fervor with which Uyghurs are learning the common language of the country, abandoning Islamic holy days and embracing Han cultural values. From their perspective, the implementation of the new security systems has been a monumental success. A middle-aged Uyghur businessman from Hotan, whom I will call Dawut, told me that, behind the checkpoints, the new security system has hollowed out Uyghur communities. The government officials, civil servants, and tech workers who have come to build, implement, and monitor the system don't seem to perceive Uyghur's humanity. The only kind of Uyghur life that can be recognized by the state is the one that the computer sees. This makes Uyghurs like Dawit feel as though their lives only matter as data, code on a screen, numbers in camps. They have adapted their behavior, and slowly, even their thoughts, to the system. Uyghurs are alive, but their entire lives are behind walls, Dawit said softly. It is like they are ghosts living in another world. For more Guardian Long Reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud forward slash theguardianlongread. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.